A global brand is a brand that is sold in large parts of the world and with a largely consistent marketing strategy in terms of brand name, in terms of brand positioning, in terms of the marketing mix. Hey, what's up, branding experts? Arik here at Ibeck Design and welcome to On Branding Podcast. And today my guest is Jan Benedict Stinkamp. So Jan Benedict is one of the world's leading thinkers on global strategy and branding. And he also is a marketing professor and book author. And so Jan Benedict co-founded AI Mark, which is a global center studying key marketing strategy issues. So Jan Benedict also wrote quite a few best-selling books on branding. And one of them is as this book, uh, Global Brand Strategy, Worldwide Marketing in the Age of Branding. And this is the book we are going to talk about today. Hello, Jan Benedict. Thanks for taking the time to join us today. Eric, my pleasure. Happy to be on your show. Thank you. So in your book, you basically examine how global brands have emerged in the global scenario, right? And you draw some conclusions and as to their characteristics and you observe some of the trends and ways to go global. And this is done based on your own research over the past 25 years, right? And based on many interviews that you've done with your colleagues and with these companies or their marketing experts. Mm -hmm. And so in your book, you show us a lot of examples, which is great. I, I love those because we can all relate. And then you also explain on the strategy behind them, but also you give us a set of tools and techniques so we can use them to expand our brands and to go global. So on today's podcast, I just wanted to talk a bit about those examples and the tools and techniques. Uh, but first, I just wanted to start with a simple question. So we are on the same page with our listeners. So could you explain to our listeners, how do you define a global brand and maybe give us some examples? Yeah, a global brand is a brand that is sold in large parts of the world and with a largely consistent marketing strategy in terms of brand name, in terms of brand positioning, in terms of the marketing mix. That is largely consistent. There is sometimes going to be some variation even in the brand name because the brand name otherwise may not be pronounceable, but these are to be exceptions. These are essentially brands that when you travel around the world, you recognize immediately. I mean, the stereotypical one would be, say, Coca-Cola, which is uh, available in about 200 countries. But you also have Facebook, for example, you have Amazon, you have uh, Toyota, you have UPS, um, you have Caterpillar in B2B, of yeah. course, you have banks like UBS, and so on. So essentially, these are brands that you travel the world and you will encounter them in many countries. Right. Um so that's how you define the global brand. Okay, so I have a few notes and takeaways for our listeners. So in general, consumers are everywhere in the world and they determine which products or services to choose, right? So mm -hmm. a global brand is a brand that uses the same name and the same logo and is recognized and available and accepted in multiple regions in the world, right? So it shares the same basic principles, value, strategic positioning, and marketing through the world. So it's not like everyone reinvents the wheel, we change the name, or we change the logo, or we change the product. Yes, there might be, as you explained in your book, there might be some changes in the approach, but basically it's a brand that uses the same logo and is recognizable worldwide, right? 
Yeah. So as you said, probably number one example would be Coca-Cola, as you just mentioned, right? Because it's one of the most popular brands in the world. Everybody knows it's everywhere, basically. So the name and the logo and the packaging everywhere in the world is the same. But there might be some things that vary to meet local needs. And you explain that in the book. So, for example, you explain how is that Coca-Cola is much sweeter in Middle East than in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, and this is because of those cultural differences. People in Middle East, they are used to using a lot of sugar, right? Yeah. Um, so they love sweeter things. So, And second example would be Heineken. It's also a global brand and it looks the same everywhere. And it has a premium positioning everywhere in the world, but not in the home market. You know, in the home market is more of a middle range beer, not a premium beer due to uh, strong competition, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that would sum up our first question. So these are two mm-hmm. examples. So in the first part of your book, you talk about key activities in brand building, right? Yeah. Uh, and here you introduce us to your comet framework. So each letter stands for each concept or tool. So it's customer preference, organizational benefit, marketing benefit, economics of scale and transitional innovation. Right. So yeah. I just wanted you to perhaps, you know, explain to our audience, what is this acronym, how you came up with this, and maybe you can talk a little bit about those five different ways in which we can, you know, create global brands and create value for global brands. So can you talk to us a bit about your framework? So the background is that marketeers naturally come to thinking about global brands from the point of view that consumers, also business to business customers, by the way, They have a certain preference for global brands um, because of associations with quality or country of origin or linked to global consumer culture. That is, for example, something that you will find with brands like Coca-Cola and other brands like Hyundai are touting the fact that they are sold around the world as an indicator of quality. And and my own research has shown that that absolutely uh, does matter. However... That does not explain the fact, as I worked with companies and I thought about it a lot more, is that in many cases, either the consumer does not know or does not care that the brand is global. Let's give a very simple example, which your listeners will all be familiar with, Pampers diapers. Mm. Many consumers around the world have either do not know that Pampers is a global brand, or they actually really don't care. They have never thought about it. Just doesn't care. I mean, why do I care that it is sold in other countries as well? Now, still, those brands are very valuable. So why is it that there are also many brands that are very valuable, whereas there is no basis in the Comet framework in the first letter, the C, for customer preference? And that's so that made me think about this more and study this in in more detail. And I identified four other factors that do create value to the company by the virtue of the brand being global that have not necessarily a whole lot to do with customer preference. And so next to the C, when we go along the the line of comment, then the O has to do with organizational benefits. Briefly, because there is a lot to be said about it, it is a lot easier to manage a brand that is the same across countries than to have country-specific brands. I've worked with some companies where actually they had country-specific brands 
And we spend 90% of the time talking about, okay, what is the difference between these brands? Because these brands were all under pressure from the rise of private labels in these different countries. But it proved to be very difficult to get something set up across, in this case, European countries, because people didn't really understand of each other. So it is organizational efficiency. It is also, mm -hmm. if you have the same brand, it is much easier and it is much faster to introduce new products, for example. So these are important organizational benefits. They don't have a lot to do with customer preference, but they translate into real money advantages for companies. Now, we are going to take a quick break here, but we'll be right back. Listen, my mission is to help people design iconic brands. So whether you're a business leader who wants to be more intentional with branding and all of its aspects, or you're a creative professional who wants to attract powerful clients and truly be able to help them succeed with branding, then you need to start with a discovery session in order to develop a strategy that will inform all of your creative work. And everything that you need to learn how to do that, you can find in my online courses at ebigdesign.com slash shop where I share with you my worksheets, case studies, video tutorials, and other additional resources to help you feel safe and strong about your process. Now let's get back to our interview. Then right. we've come at the third letter is M about the marketing advantages. There are really important marketing advantages to having a global brand. For example, that you can pull your marketing resources and you make one really good global ad as opposed to a lot of Local ads, some of them may be pretty good, some of them are really crummy. Or you leverage a creative idea across the world. And there are examples of it in the book, given time I will not go into those, but, but let's say MasterCard uh, with his priceless campaign, you know. Yeah. Some experiences are priceless, like the love of a father and a child. Other things, MasterCard. Now, then the fourth one, comment, the E, has to do with economies of scale and scope. That actually is probably among the most important ones. More important than customer preference in many cases is simply speaking, if you have tell everything under a global brand name, the natural corollary of that is that you have a relatively standardized product. There can be variation, but there's a lot of standardization in the product. Apple is a great example of that. Um, Samsung is a good example of that. Uh, Apple is more standardized than Samsung, by the way. So what you have there is that you get very significant economies of scale and scope that allow you to essentially generate higher profits. Right. And then the final aspect, the T stands for transnational innovation. That is that you do not reinvent the wheel in each country in terms of, of R&D, which has become incredibly expensive but that you can pull R&D across countries just to build better products and also to leverage local R&D for global innovation. That is, companies like L'Oreal are doing that very successfully. And simply speaking, if you do not have a global brand under which to introduce those innovations, a theoretician could say it could still happen. And yes, that is in theory, it is true. I've seen very few companies in which it really happens. Mm -hmm. That is just the nature of organization. So that is what my comet framework is about. And I do think that in today's age, you know, 2022, where definitely I would think compared to five to 10 years ago, 
globalization is under some pressure. It's not a way, but it is certainly under some pressure, which means that customer preference for global brands may be, in my perception, maybe among quite some people less than it might have been five or ten years ago, but these other factors remain very powerful in force. So global brands continue to be very valuable and continue to rise in value as an interbrand, brand Z kind of uh, list clearly show, but a lot of that value comes from these other factors in the Comet framework. Right. I see. That's a good point. So just look at summary for our listeners. I have some my key takeaways. So uh, just to sum it up, Comet framework, the C stands for customer preference. So obviously some customers may prefer a global brands versus local brands because, for example, they perceive better quality, right? And you give us a lot of great examples. Mm-hmm. And I like these figures. Here you illustrate the whole uh, Comet framework and you give us really a lot of examples that we can relate and understand because we all know this brand. So you can understand the concept behind that, right? So for example, Nivea, customers can prefer Nivea over some local brands because they perceive it to be better quality since it's a global brand, right? And there are different aspects of that. It could be that they want to belong to a global brand. So from the customer's Mm -hmm. perspective, you know, uh, they may value global brands versus uh, local brands, right? And because of the country of origin, that's another thing, right? Like, For example, we associate with Germany engineering, right? Like Bosch, BMW. Other example would be to leveraging country of origin would be L'Oreal Paris, which you already mentioned in context of different part of the framework. But so O stands for organizational benefits. So global brands can be more innovative because... They can make competitive moves, right? They can use cash from one country to be more aggressive in another country. And for example, Toyota and Samsung. So they can create this corporate identity to align employees and create this sense of of Mm -hmm. belonging in the organization, right? The M stands for marketing benefits. So as you mentioned, you know, global brands can benefit from exposure to media in different countries, right? And they can also leverage celebrities here like Nike with Cristiano Ronaldo or H&M with Beyonce, for example. And the E in the framework stands for economics of scale. So global brands can benefit from cutting cost of setup, production, inventory, and so on. And the T stands for transitional innovation. So a global brand can benefit from pulling finances and human resources from other countries, right? To speed up innovation, source new product ideas, and other things. And here on in this part, we also talk about customer proposition and marketing mix, which, you know, I really recommend you guys if you want to check out more examples because the book is very comprehensive. We won't have time to talk about everything on this podcast. We just want to give you guys like a high level overview of what to expect if you want to dive in and learn more. But I just wanted to quickly, if you can talk about the second part where you examine the key structures and processes for building global brands, right? So here you get down to the nitty gritty actually and you talk about how Mm -hmm. to actually do this so in the first part you kind of explain your framework you give us a lot of examples and here you actually talk about your structures and processes so can you talk to us a bit about that about some of those organizational models and how to develop and execute on the strategy maybe you can give us some examples like png yeah so here we have all these different um, activities in terms of brand building, uh, digital strategy, the marketing mix, product pricing, etc. And that second section of the book is essentially, okay, 
how to make that happen. And there are two important aspects are, say, the skeleton and the muscle. That is the skeleton that is the organizational structure, and the muscles are the management processes. So in terms of the skeleton is that I look at different organizational models, and certain organizational models are just much more conducive for implementing a global brand strategy than other ones. I talk about the geographical model, which is actually quite common, that companies are organizing their activities country by country. Now, that makes it quite difficult to get to a global strategy because the real power resides in the country bosses. And ultimately, what you have to look at this is where does the power in the organization reside? That determines a lot what the organization can do. And if the power resides in the country barons um, who have a vested interest to show that their country is different from another country, because if it is not the case, why the heck do we need a separate country organization that works against a global strategy? I'm not saying it is impossible. In principle, you know, you just make it very difficult for yourself. I talk about a functional organization, which is much more organized by function, like, like marketing or production, at a global level or at a regional level. Sometimes you have a little bit of variation because the function may be, say, about Europe, the Middle East, Africa, Asia, the Americas or so, just to make it also manageable. But that functional organization in which the real power decides in the VP of that function, the VP marketing, the VP production, etc., makes it a lot easier. And I'm all talking about other things, the matrix organization, um, you see also companies moving from one organization structure to the other. And mm-hmm. um, I'm somewhat skeptical about this. Simply speaking, um, I've talked to a number of people that have gone through the zillionth organizational restructure. And actually last week I talked with somebody that had just retired of a very large oil company. He said, I have had something like 10 reorgs in my life, and essentially, you know, we have moved nowhere. We have moved in a circle, you know, so because that's not as conducive. But still, ultimately, the structure is one thing, but as we all know, a body does not move without muscles. So an organization, a global strategy does not move without management processes. And one of the key factors is here, I talk about more, but I'm just going to highlight one thing is, to what extent are say, the performance criteria for individual managers, to what extent do they help or hurt support for global initiatives? So, for example, if you largely get your bonuses based on, say, market share in your own country, fine. But that actually fosters not only a mindset, but also behavior of, let's say, tweaking things and actually even not doing things which would be good from a global perspective in my own country because in my country the successes would be the potential would be less in my country than in another country and I have an actually another idea which can help me build market share but the thing is that if you to for an effective global strategy 
individual managers have to have a stake in global success, which means that they have part of their performance evaluation and the bonuses have to be based on the global success of the brands rather than only focusing on the local success. Now, I'm, also, I'm talking about that a little bit more. Another very important aspect is that what you have in Many companies, it is a little less than before, but in many companies, they say we are truly a global organization, which is great. But when you look at the top management, they're nearly all from the home country. So the thing is, it is not easy to build really a global strategy and to implement a global strategy unless in your top management team, you do have people from different countries. So the diversity of which there is rightfully a lot of attention recently and understandably so, but that is not only diversity, say, within the United States towards having more women, towards having more underrepresented minorities at higher levels. Yes, that is. But there's another type of diversity which is also crucial for global organizations, and that is diversity in terms of nationality. To have a global organization in which nearly all of the people are from America is not fully, is, is not really a diverse organization at the global level. You need people also from other parts of the world. And that is something where actually American companies are significantly lagging versus, say, companies in countries like the UK, uh, the Netherlands. Uh, Switzerland, for example, and of course these are smaller countries, but actually the point is that it doesn't matter. A number of these companies are as big as American companies. And mm. So America is doing a better job than, say, Japan or China. Okay, that is good, but they can still make a tremendous progress in terms of nationality diversity, and that is one of the things that I also point out, that it does help to develop better strategies if you have greater diversity in your team's nationality, and not only at lower-level teams, at the top-level teams as well. Right, leadership, diversity in the leadership. That's a great point. So that would sum up your second part of the book. And then in the third part, you talk about some of the metrics, right? So you talk about the performance, global brand performance. So here you talk about things like brand equity and how to measure that. And also how those brand building efforts contribute to shareholder value. Right. So can you explain to our audience a bit for those who don't know what is brand equity? And maybe you can talk to us a bit about some of this, you know, performance part, how to measure brand performance. Yes. So why do I give a significant attention to that is and say my minor in my uh, master studies was in finance. And I have always believed in the fact that at the end of the day, the things that you are doing have to be measured in terms of dollars. You do. And that is, you can do many great things, which I highly respect, but even doesn't show up at the end of the day in terms in a higher dollar value, then honestly, it is difficult to argue that all these investments have been really useful. Now, and brand right. equity is essentially is the dollar value that you can put on a brand. Um, to, to put it simply, it is the value if you look at the product without a brand name versus the product with a brand name on there. So when you think about Coca-Cola, you see a glass 
of brown bubbly liquid, first you should see a glass of brown bubbly liquid, which has the name Coca-Cola on it. By the way, you would see a tremendous difference in consumer appreciation. And in terms of when I look at brand equity, first thing is you have to look at how much do consumers appreciate that in terms of awareness, in terms of attitudes, in terms of action, purchasing behavior. That is the consumer level that you have to drill at some of it in the minds of the consumers and looking at what they're doing. A second component is looking at sales-based brand equity. Can I sell more, higher volume? Can I sell at a higher price? You see, that is from the consumer to the market and then finally to the financial markets, to the CFO. And that is, what is the effect on profits, profit growth, on return, return on capital? And right. so that is the world really that the CFO understands the best. And I was one time consulting with a large company in the consumer space that has an extremely strong brand. And I was working with them to fight, you know, copycats that are essentially providing many of the same benefits, but at a significantly lower price and, and how to deal with that. And then at the end of one of the days, I had an off-site talk, say, with the CFO for some time. And he said to me, yeah, Benedict, you know, do you have a moment? You know, can we talk? He said, yeah. And he asked me actually a very simple question. He was positive. He was not at all negative or anything like that. But he said, you know, can you explain to me? Because the marketing people tell me that a strong brand is really very important to the company. I said, I hear that and I am not denying it, but I don't really understand it. How does that show up in the company? And then I said, well, because that guy, he has been trained in finance, in the capital asset pricing model and in the things that you see on the balance sheet. And he does not understand things like mindset metrics, you know, attitudes, trust in brands, etc. I said, you know, what it really comes down to, so I was now talking about the financial side of the brands, is that what it really comes down to is the following, that If you have a strong brand, your cash flows are going to be less volatile over time because higher consumer loyalty means that consumers will less quickly switch from your brand to another brand Mm -hmm. and they will be less vulnerable to competitive actions. That means that the financial markets will understand that the projected cash flows into the future are going to be more stable. And that then means that the discount rate that the financial markets will apply to your future cash flow will be lower. Because, as we all know, the financial markets do not like risk. I said, so even if you don't sell more, because more stable cash flows with a lower discount account rate, produce a higher net present value, and that's the value of your brand. He said to me, now I first time actually get what the brand is, why your brand is valuable. Just because you were talking about the language of finance. So what I do in this chapter, I'm talking about that, and then I am in that ultimately will translate into a dollar amount that you can put on a brand and that some of that is publicly available. You know, you've seen some interbrand is, is a well-known list. Right. Brand Z is another one. So there you can actually track over time how much value your brand is worth. And then in the final thing is, then I say, okay, how does this brand value, the dollar value of the brand, how much Pampers is worth, how much is, is Coca-Cola is worth, how does that translate into shareholder value? 
Because that is ultimately the metric which financial markets, they like brand value, but ultimately that is because it should contribute to shareholder value. And there what I document is that significant effect, and I will, uh, can't go into details here, but I document it is a very strong evidence that higher brand value, higher brand equity, so the dollar value of the brand translates into higher shareholder value. Essentially, one dollar extra brand equity translates into 0.25 to 30 cents more shareholder value. And then you have made a link between the marketing actions in parts one and two in the book yeah. and the financial markets, Wall Street in the shareholder value part. And that kind of gives the whole picture. And that also gives, and that's what I also teach my students is that it's very important that you quantify whatever you do because ultimately the C-suite will want to see some evidence that it will have an effect on shareholder value. Yeah, the measure is key, measuring the performance in any work, right? And especially when it comes to brand building. That's great. So gracefully and clearly explain that to our audience. So that's awesome. If you guys want to learn more, I'm going to include the link into the book in the description box below. So obviously I'm going to link to your book, but please let us know how we can find more about you. So for people who want to either work with you or learn more from you, uh, maybe your website or social media. Um, yes, um, I have a website, www.jbsteenkamp.com. Okay, so and we're going to include that link. Yeah. And I also am on LinkedIn. So if you wish to connect with me, I post regularly things on LinkedIn, my thoughts on, on brands and, and on leadership. So just send me an invite on LinkedIn sure. and I'm very happy to connect with you and we can learn from each other. Sure, that's awesome. So visit Benedict's website and connect with him on LinkedIn. I'm going to include those links in the description box. So thanks you, Jan Benedict, for coming on the show. I really appreciate that and have a great day. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. You have a great day as well. Stay safe. You too. And Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. Bye. Thank, thank you. Bye.